As soon as we're finished with our service this morning, we're having an after party right down the hall here on the left. There's coffee and we have refreshments. And uh, it's an opportunity for me to connect with people that, you know, when church is over, sometimes we scatter and uh, I hardly get to connect with people. But especially if you're new, I would like to chat with you a little bit, get to know you down there at the after party. If you have something you want to communicate with me about, come on down there. Okay, because that's where I'm going to be right afterwards. And also, before we get into uh, our message this morning, I want, I'm going to ask John and Leah Longenecker to stand if they would. These folks have just been approved as members, voting members of our church. Yeah, I think we have to put our hands together. Welcome. Welcome. Proverb chapter 10, verse 23 says, it is like sport to a fool to do mischief, but a man of understanding has wisdom. I remember the days when it was like a sport to me. It was fun. It was, it was a joke. It was something uh, that, that I found great pride in, being able to pull some prank on a teacher and get away with it. Or do something that the police officers would have cuffed me and stuffed me for and get away with it. I used to think that was like sport. That was, that was really exciting to be able to get away with something. But the scripture says it is like sport to a fool to do mischief. I didn't realize I was a fool at the time. I'm not where I used to be, aren't you glad? But a man of understanding has wisdom. So we are, uh, this morning in this series, we are uh, looking at things that we're supposed to know. The foundational truths of Christianity that we're supposed to already know, not something we're supposed to learn. This is is supposed to be a basic. So today we're going to finish this series and we're looking at the book of James at four particular things, he says that we already know. And here's the first one. If you want to fill in your blank, this is it. We know testing produces endurance. Did you know that? That's a part of Christianity. Our testing develops something. It produces something in us that we wouldn't have if we didn't go through the test. And that is endurance. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers. Notice who he's writing to, Christians, brothers. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect or mature result, so that you may be perfect, or rather mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. So what we're supposed to do is let it have its way. Let it it work itself out in us. If we will stand faithful in the test, it will produce something. It will move us to another level. But we need to pass the test. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 5 verse 3, where he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Basically, he's saying the same thing here, a development. He's referring to our spiritual growth 
We know how this applies to natural tests and physical growth, but he's applying it to spiritually as well. Now, how can you consider something joy that is suffering to us, causes us a little pain, a little discomfort? He tells us to consider it joy. How do you do that? Obviously, the trials we go through don't put a smile on our face. So what's he talking about when he says consider it joy? I think he's talking about consider it an opportunity. Consider it something to look, be, to look forward to because we understand God's going to bring something good out of it. So maybe that's not going to put a smile on our face, but it ought to put a little determination in us, a little bit of anticipation, a little bit of optimism, looking to the future. Something good's going to come out of this. I don't understand how, but something good's going to come out of this. And then we learn that facing the test develops endurance. Facing it, you can't run away from it. You have to face it if it's going to bring out endurance. You can't hide. You can't stick your head in the sand, pretend it's not there. Ask for prayer requests so somebody else will fix it for you. We got to face the test. And that is what develops endurance in us. Personal example, uh, years ago when I was young, decades ago when I was young, (laughs) I was in the Army. I enlisted. And uh, the first thing you do in the Army is they put you in basic training. Basic training is two months of your life where they're trying to, to break your selfishness, make you a part of the military machine so that everybody functioned together. Uh, some of it was classroom where they were teaching you about rank and that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of it was just physical practice where we had to go out and do uh, things that we might have to do in combat, find out who's got it, who doesn't, and to train people that don't have it on how to do it because your life's on the line in the military. So uh, one of the things we had to do is pass at the end of the two months, you had to pass what they called a physical proficiency test. You had to prove that you could do things physically, that you could take care of yourself. One of the things, and then they had points they would give to you. Uh, it was like a, a competition, but you had to measure up to, to get out of basic training. And one of the things we had to do was throw a hand grenade, not a live one. They didn't trust us. But they gave us dummy grenades that felt just like a real one. And we had to throw these grenades into... Uh, a bullseye on the ground, and you, you got a certain number of points if you got the grenade beyond the first ring. You got more points if you got it beyond the second ring, and then you got even more points if you got it beyond the third ring. I had a weak arm, and I would heave that grenade, and I could get it almost to that line, and I couldn't get it in. And I remember this corporal working in my company come to me, and he said, Deal, what's wrong with you? He said, Somebody built like you shouldn't have any problem getting that grenade into that ring. And he said, If you don't get on top of this, they're going to recycle you. 
Now, I don't know if you know what recycle means in the military, but that means you got to go all the way back and go through basic training again. And I thought, no way. This hard enough the first time. I'm not going to do this the second time. So what I did, because I knew the test was coming, I take a, a canvas bag of hand grenades, dummies, and I took them over to the, to the area about two blocks away where you could do this kind of practice. And I heaved those grenades, and I pitched them like a baseball. I tried sidearm. I tried lobbing them overhead. I tried every possible way of flinging that grenade until I found out what worked the best. And then I practiced more, and I practiced more. Every evening I was over there after, after we ate and had a little free time, I would go over there because I was not going to go through basic training the next time. I knew the test was coming, and I was going to pass it. And when the test came, I passed it. I got the grenade where it needed to be. You see, the test motivated me to endurance. I had to do this. Yes. If you realize, if you, if you grabbed a hold of the fact that your getting into heaven required something of you, would you make an effort? Would you work a little bit extra hard if that's what it took? If getting victory over difficulties in your life required a little extra work, wouldn't you do that? I think we would. But that's exactly the case. Because Satan will throw up every obstacle he can, but we got a test coming and we got to pass it. You see, endurance, developing endurance, takes you all the way. It's not a want to, it's carrying you all the way. Think about this. Why did God waste 33 years? of Jesus' life. If God sent Jesus to this earth to go to the cross and pay the price for our sin, why did it take 33 years to get to that point? That's a good question. Why did Jesus spend all those hours on the cross? If the goal was for him to die in the play, he who was innocent paying for those of us who are guilty, why all that pain and suffering going on and on? Why doesn't he just die? Why the prolonging of it? Why did Jesus have to stay three days in the grave? I mean, I understand he died for, the, for our sin. And he rose from the dead to give us hope. I understand that. But why three day gap? It's obvious God's not in a hurry. Why, if the goal is for Jesus to come back for those who are redeemed, why has it been like 2,000 years now we're all waiting, expecting any day Jesus to come back? Why all this prolonging? I think it's because God is trying to develop endurance in His church. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the race we're running is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Marathons, you don't take off as fast as you can. You pace yourself 
and you stay steady and you push your way all the way through to the end. This is the first thing we should already know. Testing produces endurance. Here's the second thing we should know from the book of James. We know teachers will be judged more strictly. Hmm, this is interesting. James chapter 3 verse 1 says it. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Teachers will be judged more strictly. Why? Why is that? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't it be talking about rewards? Shouldn't it be talking about the blessings? Why is it talking about being judged more strictly? I think it's because teachers are imparting, instilling something in someone's life. And so whatever we pass on to someone else, we're going to be held accountable for. And all of us, if we think about it, are teachers. When you go back to work on Monday, or when you go back to school next fall, you're teaching everybody around you about God at work in the life of a sinner. What are they seeing? What are we instilling in them? Because we are responsible for what we instill in others. When I was a senior in high school, the biggest, most important thing to me was to get a better car. And I didn't have any money. And my dad wasn't giving me freebies. So I went to uh, one of the local factories in Butler, and I asked for an application. And they gave it to me, and I filled out this application. And I thought, if I can get this job, second shift job, at the factory, I can still go to school in the daytime. See, when you're young, you can have these big dreams. Those both, that both wouldn't have happened. So I took this application that I filled out. Uh, that There's a paper that the factory required me to have if I was a student in school, which back in those days, a lot of people dropped out of high school and got a job. But if, I was going, if they were going to employ me, I had to have a paper of release from the school principal. So I, I took that into the school and I gave it to the principal to have him sign so that I could work this job while I was still in school. And the principal said, that's not a good idea. He said, that's, you, you shouldn't forget, finish your high school and then get the job. And he said this, if I sign this I have to have a letter of permission from your dad. I thought, oh boy. Because I knew what my dad would say. My dad dropped out of high school to go into World War II. And after he got out, he went back to school on the GI Bill and finished it. My dad was not a pushover. He knew how important that high school diploma was. So he would not sign it. Because he wouldn't sign it, the principal wouldn't sign it. Because the principal wouldn't sign it, I couldn't get the job. So that's a little bit of background. But anyway, I'm a senior in high school, and I went, they took me through this orientation thing at the factory, where they took you through, and they, they showed everything that they did and how they did it, and gave, gave us a little bit of feel for what they did at that place of employment. 
And when I was there going through that orientation, a man stepped out of the office and I immediately recognized him because he was an elder at the church where my parents went. And I, I kind of put a smile on my face when I saw him come out. Oh, he works there. And I don't know what the deal was, but he was angry. He came out of that office and he was upset about something and he took off cussing left and right, throwing four-letter words out, and I was just shocked. And this, I was this impressionable young teenager, and I watched that, and you know what that man taught me? He taught me that Christians are hypocrites, that they go to church and they act like angels on Sunday, but they act like the devil the rest of the week. I saw hypocrisy in it. And I, in this, this idealistic teenager, just evaluated that. And I said to myself, all Christians are like that. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. They shine up on Sunday morning and then they just fall apart the rest of the week. And I made up my mind right then and there. I want nothing to do with it. Just a bunch of phoniness. And it, wasn't, it didn't interest me. I want something that's real. And that was a, that was a turning point in my life because that man taught me something. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we teaching one another? Because we're going to have to stand before God and give account what we're teaching. Can God really change a person's life? Then let's live the change. Somebody say amen. amen. That's the difference between truth, the truth will set you free, and practice, which is acting out the freedom that we have. If you don't act it out, do we really believe it? That's the question. All right, going on to number three. Here's the third thing we learn. We know tolerance with the world is discord with God. We may not like this. As a matter of fact, I don't like this sometimes. But I have to understand that to get the world to like me makes me an enemy of God. Because God has a whole different concept for me. He has a whole different direction for where he wants believers to go. And the world doesn't understand it. And the world is chasing the dollar. It's chasing education. It's changing. It's chasing after collecting a bunch of stuff that's all going to go to somebody else when we die. God wants to redeem and change us on the inside. Give us a spiritual birth. And tolerance with the world is discord with God. James chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 says it like this. Yet even when you do pray, your prayers are not answered because you pray just for selfish reasons. You people aren't faithful to God. Don't you know that if you love the world, you are God's enemies? And if you decide to be a friend of the world... You make yourself an enemy of God. We've got a problem in the church in the world, in this world today, because the church wants to be liked by the world. And so we compromise what we say we believe, what we know the Bible teaches, to make the world pleased with us. So the world will, will put a smile on the world's face. We're supposed to be rescuing people out of the world. We're not supposed to be letting the world change us. We're supposed to be changing the world. 
What is friendship? Friendship with the world. King James says friendship with the world is the problem. What is how what 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 separates a friend from an acquaintance? I mean, we're all here this morning, we look at one another and we're all acquaintances with one another. We can probably say what somebody else's name is on the other side of the room. But a friend is someone you trust. A friend is someone you go to with things you wouldn't go to other people with. A friend is somebody who you know is there for you. You got trouble, they're going to be walking through it with you. That's a friend. Friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. So we got to make our mind up here where we stand. Because there is an, an ongoing tension between the world and what it believes and its values and God and the values He wants to instill in us. There's just always going to be that tension. And you and I need to make up our mind where we're going to stand. Years ago, I'll tell you this story, uh, we had a swarm, I'm, there's probably a better word for this, but we had a swarm of, of honeybees at our house. And these bees, when I say a swarm, I don't mean they're buzzing all around, all around us. I mean they clustered together. They created this cluster just crawling over one another. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This cluster was like that big around. And they nested, they, they created this cluster at the top of a pin oak tree that I had planted. It was maybe 12 foot high at the time. And the reason you put in a pin oak is because that trunk grows real straight and true. And I thought, this is a beautiful tree. I want to put one of these on my property. So I planted that thing. This swarm of bees were at the top of that thing. It had, had it bowed over almost to the ground. Top was almost at the ground. I wasn't happy about that. And they just stayed there. And we, you know, we didn't let the kids outside because you don't know what's going to happen with a swarm of bees like that. And they were there for about a day. And then disappeared. But there was a a uh, cluster of them that stayed, about the size maybe of a softball, stayed at the top of that tree, which was now bowed over. And so we wondered what to do, because they stayed. So my wife called up the uh, extension agent in DeKalb County to ask them, what do we do? Is there a beekeeper or someone that could come and take those out? And that person told her, said, uh, what you got is a queen bee came to the tree. And then all the workers were around the queen. And then the queen decided to leave. And when the queen left, all the bees followed the queen. But there were a few bees that were out flying around. And when they came back to where the queen was, she was gone. And they were lost. And they didn't know what to do or where to go. So they just huddled there. And the extension agent said, don't worry about them. They'll either die or fly away. Because they've lost their way. Without the queen, they've lost their way. Is there a message in that for us? 
If we, can, can we say we're Christians but have lost sight of the king and lost our way and don't know where we're going? So we huddle in church like we got it all together when we really don't? I think there's a lesson in there for me and maybe for you. We know tolerance with the world and the world's ways is discord with God. That doesn't mean we should go out and shame people for not living God's ways. doesn't mean that. How are you going to help them then? It means we don't compromise. Amen? Amen? I fear for leaders of churches who have compromised to make the world smile. All right, here's number four. Got to wrap this up. We know tenacity will be blessed. You know what tenacity is? Webster defines tenacious as persistent in maintaining or adhering to something valued as habitual. In other words, keep trying hard. That's what tenacity means. You keep trying hard. Even when you're discouraged, you keep trying hard. James chapter 5 verse 11 says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. We have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We Christians have got to keep that goal in front of us. We've got to see the Lord as compassionate yes. and merciful. He keeps reaching out because He cares. Tenacity. When I was a teenager, you can tell you're getting old because you reflect back on the good old days. When I was a teenager, my grandpa passed away and my dad inherited the house. So our family moved uh, into grandpa's house, uh, which is much bigger than the one we had. And uh, grandpa had a barn out behind the house where horses had been bred in the past and boarded in the past. After grandpa died, nobody kept horses in there anymore. So it wasn't used for anything. And I remember as a teenager, we had rats in that barn. And I took it upon myself to rid that barn of the rats. So my dad had some old muskrat traps, rusted up things. And I asked him if I could use them to catch the rats. And he told, gave me permission, told me to do it. He gave me some tips. I took those rat traps and I put them in boiling water to remove the scent of a teenager. You know what teenagers smell like. <laughs> and I, I set, put gloves on and I set those traps and I noticed a place where they came out of a, a wall in the barn. I could see the trail. And I set that trap there. I covered it up with some straw so you, it wasn't visible. I knew they couldn't smell me. And I waited. Next day, I had a rat. Man, was that exhilarating. That pulled my chain. I was decided I was going to clean the barn out of all those rats. So I set a couple more traps. And I discovered this. 
Once you catch a rat in a trap in that location, you'll never catch another one. They've got their heads up. That's a warning. So I had to keep moving the traps and, and covering them up in a different way. I had to make a surprise attempt where I knew a rat was going to go. I would set the trap there. They wouldn't go for my bait, but they'd step in it. And I learned later as I reflected back on that, you know, that's exactly what Satan does. He knows we're smart enough not to step in the same trap twice. So he'll set another trap over here for us. And then he'll set another trap up over there. And as I was tenacious in my attempt to rid the barn of that, those rats, Satan is just that tenacious setting up traps to catch us. He doesn't want us to follow through, which would be called endurance. He wants us to get caught in a trap, and there we're stuck. Don't get caught in a trap. But I got good news for you out of this last point. God is just that tenacious about us. In Psalm 139, verses 5 through 10, I want us to read this. He says, you surround me, talking about God, you surround me, front and back. You put your hand on me. That kind of knowledge is too much for me. It's so high above me that I can't reach it. Where could I go to get away from your spirit? Where could I go to escape your presence? If I went up to heaven, you'd be there. If I went down to the grave, you'd be there too. If I fly on the wings of of dawn, stopping to rest only at the far side of the ocean, even there your hand would guide me. Even there your strong hand would hold me tight. God is tenacious. I can't get away from him. If I go to church where I expect to meet him, there he is. If I run away from church because I don't want to meet him, there he is. If I... If I go here, there he is. If I go there, there he he is. If I'm young, if I'm old, wherever I go, there he is. Some, Some folks have called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven because once he gets on the scent, he won't back off. He'll just pursue. God's been after me my whole life. And God's been after you your whole life. Before you made a decision for Christ, God was at work in your life trying to bring you to a place where he could bring blessing into your life and use you for his glory. He's the hound of heaven. He's tenacious, and he will not give up on you. Let's stand together. He's tenacious. And you know, there's a part of the Spirit of God, a part of his nature that when the Spirit of God comes into us, brings that nature into us, and that's tenaciousness. Is that a word? Tenacity. Stubbornness. Hanging on to God because we don't have any other choice. We can't turn any other direction. He's the only hope we have. Amen? I want to go back to that first point and kind of wrap this message up with that. Trials, testing, produce 
endurance, tenacity. James is obviously talking about that in, in, his, in his message here. And makes me think, the reason I'm preaching this this morning is probably because there's some people here going through some trials, some difficulties, and you need reminded to hang in there. If you know what this message is about and what God's trying to do because you're dealing with a trial in your life right now, raise your right hand. Nobody's business what kind of trial. Lord, I pray right now for these hands that are raised, people going through a difficulty, people going through a challenge. I pray, God, they won't become weary in well-doing. They will hang on to their faith in you. We can expect to see you bring breakthroughs. Father, I pray that you're going to give us stamina, that you're going to help us to hang on, that you're going to give us encouragement, Father, that we're going to hear something from here and there that's going to be encouragement to carry us. And so, Father, I want to pray for every hand that's up that you would reach down and touch that hand. The Father, that there's going to be a power of connection from the heavens right down into their life so it makes a difference in this world. So, Father, let the power of your Spirit move in lives. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If God loves the world, we need to love the world. And if we love the world, we agape love them, which means we help them become better. We don't let them stay where they are. We help them grow. Amen? I didn't want to, when I said have no tolerance for the world, I didn't mean, you know, we needed to harm the world. We need to make the world better. Amen. Lord, dismiss us as we walk out of these doors. Help us to remember that's the mission field out there. Help us to go and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go with God. I'm going to be in the after party.